You can turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33. The reading of God's Word comes from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33. Lend your attention. This is the very Word of God. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused to listen, have stretched out my hands and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure, and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we can attend to the reading and the preaching of your word and hear therein not the words of man, but the very words of God that you are pleased to bring about life by these things. These are wonders, O Lord. And so we ask that you would attend the reading and the preaching with your blessing, that the truth of it would be pressed upon our hearts, and that you would bring about those effects which can only come from uh, the Spirit of Christ, that you would cause us to eat your words like the prophets of old, to subsist upon them, to lean not upon our own understanding and to delight, to cast ourselves upon the word that remains, that does not fade. So we ask that you administer to us even now. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear aright that we may be strengthened and encouraged retrieved, corrected, rebuked, built up. Whatever is needful for our good, Father, that is what we desire. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Scripture serving as our sermon text come from Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, a well-known passage. Then we'll look at Westminster Shorter Catechism, 
uh, 39 and 40. But first, uh, the word of the Lord. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Thus ends the reading of God's Word. And then Westminster Shorter Catechism 39. What is the duty which God requireth of man? The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. And then question 40. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. Well, we're really going to treat only of question 39 tonight, and we'll take up question 40 next week, but I thought it good to read both. We're going to ask of our question a series of questions. The first is, what does God require? What does God require? God requires obedience. Scripture states this plainly. Our passage. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly. To do right. To do that which God has said is right. Which is right in the truest sense. Man is not left to invent his own rules, to make up his own laws. He is beholden to the great lawgiver, who is righteousness, who is justice, who is holiness. Samuel tells Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as, and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Saul had a plain command from the Lord, if you can remember this episode. And he began to obey, didn't he? And perhaps even to the naked eye, it looked as if he obeyed. But such was not the case. He began and then stopped and decided to do what was right in his own eyes instead. And thus from this episode, we learn not just that the Lord requires obedience, but we also learn something about this obedience. God requires complete obedience. Saul defeated the Amalekites, as the Lord had commanded him, but he did not devote them to destruction. Instead, he took the choicest spoils from men and for feasting. It was an incomplete obedience. True obedience does not begin and then leave off unfinished. Such is not true obedience. Nor is true obedience selective obedience attending to one thing and neglecting another. 
Recall the Lord's words in Matthew 23. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. Sinful man will often highlight the little things he has done, ignoring or downplaying the major things he has left undone. God also requires sincere obedience. It is to be an obedience from the heart, from the very seat of man, with that external act being the overflow of a heart that is truly stricken with the Lord's word. It does not consist in mere externals with a grave incongruity between the inner person and the external act. In the once and future king, Mordred obeyed the letter of Arthur's law, even as he worked tirelessly to destroy Arthur. He hated the one who set down the law, even as he worked within the law. Would anyone see that as true obedience? I think not. True obedience is also quiet obedience. It's not showy and loud, blowing the trumpet for man to see. Jesus warns of our propensity for performative righteousness. Works done ultimately to be seen by men. Mark how different Jesus was in this. He did not cry aloud, nor did anyone hear his voice in the streets. He would heal and then command that the recipient tell no one. Sinful man does little loudly, looking for praise from men. Jesus the Christ did much quietly, delighting to do his Father's will, knowing that his life was looked upon by his heavenly Father. And that's the last observation on this obedience. True obedience is offered ultimately unto God. Man will do much if he sees his own interest and his own gain served in it. But true obedience is interested ultimately only in what God wants. God's interests. Even if it means the individual's interests suffer for a time. As it did. On Calvary. This is the obedience God is pleased to require, and we should all be humbled. Should we not? But take another angle. Let's marvel at the patience of our God instead. Would anyone argue that this is what man owes God by every conceivable consideration of the matter? And yet, what did we read this morning in Revelation 5? There was no one worthy. What did God mourn in the passage we read from Isaiah? That he looked down and there were none obedient. Not you, not me. No one was to be found in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. And yet, the world continued on. Such a defiance was not met with what it reasonably should have been met with. 
If you treacherously withhold something from a king, isn't a king well within his rights to blot out such a rebellious subject? And yet he doesn't. And not only that, this world continues to receive good from this God. Rains, bread, oil, wine, marriage, children, work to rebels, distributed where there was only treachery. How kind our God is. The fact that this obedience has only been found once in its exact contours in the Lord Jesus Christ is simultaneously wonderful and tragic. Because this obedience is beyond reasonable. It's good. It's right. It's blessedness. So we can marvel at the kindness of our God, the patience of our God, and ask that the thought humbles us to consider how long-suffering he is, how patient he is. And may the thought come to us when we are in need of repenting quickly. For Paul tells us this is the purpose of God's kindness, to lead us to repentance. We can ask next, from whom does God require obedience? Again, the answer, he requires it of man. He has told you, O oh man, Micah says. Or the Apostle Paul, you have no excuse, O oh man. Human beings, all human beings. Micah does not say, he has told you, O Israel. That's striking. Micah does not say, he has told you, O rich or O poor. O priests, O prophets, O kings. O servants, O masters, O men, O women. What does he say? He has told you, O man. O mankind. All human beings are required to obey God. In one respect, God has the exact same relation to every single human being in that he is creator, provider, and sovereign Lord. As many have pointed out, these relations make it abundantly plain that God has an unquestionable right to command whatever he wants from his creation. And he is pleased to require obedience from mankind. Consider first that he is the creator and we are his creatures. When the prophet likens us to clay and God the potter, he presses upon our hearts that there is an absolute right a non-negotiable right, a ridiculous to dispute right that the potter has over the clay. He can make of it what he chooses and certainly he can demand of it whatever he pleases. It is a sign of our depravity that we would question this and begrudge him this right. It is against nature and against reason. Second, he is the giver of all good, and we are the recipients. 
Psalm 145 sings, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Psalm 104 sings, All things look to you to give them their food in due season. You give wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread to gladden the heart of man. Even our secular proverbs recognize the darkness and absurdity of biting the hand that feeds you. What do they mean by that? That the one who supplies you so freely with those basic and essential goods has a certain right over you. This is true in the most absolute sense of the one who supplies us with life, breath, and earth that is stable underneath our footfalls. Third, he is the absolute sovereign Lord and King, and all are his subjects. This is the high language that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 6. He is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. When Mordred betrays Arthur, the once and future king, we feel the darkness of it because Arthur is the true king. We also feel it because Arthur is a good king and he has given Mordred much. But the most egregious part of Mordred's treachery is that Arthur is Mordred's father. To rebel against a king is wrong. To rebel against a good king is heinous. To rebel against a good king who has given you life is unspeakable. How much more unspeakable man's disobedience against the one who is light. In whom there is no darkness, no, none at all who is life and gives life freely to his subjects. We can make one further observation on Micah's words. God's goodness is on display in his demanding our obedience. That's striking, isn't it? What does Micah say? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. The things that he commands are good. They're objectively, inherently, by every consideration, good. Imagine someone who is convinced that choice wine is poison. That marbled beef is deadly. That sleep doesn't restore, but kills. That a bath doesn't refresh, but destroys. That honey is bitter, flowers are ugly, and the breeze is detestable, and so on and so forth. Such is our fallen heart towards God's demand for obedience. What does Paul say? The law is spiritual and good. <laughs> 
God says, not only do I have the right to command obedience by every conceivable angle of our relationship, but my goodness is on display in the very commands that I give you. He has told you what is good, oh man. We can pause here and lament how dark our sinful hearts are on this matter and how difficult it is for us to see that angle on what God commands. Not only do we consider that it is unreasonable for God to require obedience, but that we would consider his requirements ugly or unjust. How can the one who is just give something unjust? How can the one who is beautiful give something that is ugly? That we would be so deranged to think that our good lies down a path of rebellion, of lust, of greed, of theft, of cruelty, shows us just how dark our hearts really are. We're not seen rightly. Now praise be to God that in the Lord Jesus Christ, He has recovered something of a right understanding in our hearts, has He not? We have heard Jesus say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is like we've seen something of the lightness of following Christ, of the loveliness of being redeemed from cruel taskmasters and being brought into the service of the only one who's worthy of serving. We've seen something of this by God's great grace, such that we can truly say with the psalmist, by faith from the new heart, Oh, how I love your law. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. This is what Christ has recovered in raising us from the dead, in bringing sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, walking to the lame. Have you tasted of this spiritual understanding? When Christ calls us to our religious duties, to public worship, to prayer, to attending and waiting upon God's word, do we hear these things for what they really are? Calls unto fellowship with our triune God, enjoyed by faith. Or do we hear them as the old man? Unreasonable demands with a wish that he would just leave us alone. When Christ calls us to our moral duties to love God and to love neighbor, do we hear these things for what they are? Spirit-empowered iterations of life as it was supposed to be. Life in fullness and in the presence of God. Or do we hear them as the old man? Unreasonable demands with a, with a wish that he would simply let us go down our own way. I suspect it is a mixture of both. For flesh contends with spirit and spirit with flesh. 
Let us be mindful of these competing and antithetical views that are at work within ourselves. Let us lament that there is still much of the old that lingers and that's humbling, is it not? Let that drive us not to despair, but into the arms of Christ, who came as friend of sinners. And let us ask him to foster in us that right understanding of true righteousness and holiness, which he alone can and does and delights to give to those who look to him in faith. So then let us mark quickly something that's surprising, although it really isn't. It's that the Christian, as well as the non-Christian, is required to obey. What, what's the alternative? The only alternative to obedience is rebellion. <laughs> Does God require rebellion from the Christian? Nonsense. He requires obedience from the Christian. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not that one is excused from obedience and the other is not. The difference, rather, is seen in the role obedience plays and whence the power unto sincere obedience. Both are called to obey. The non-Christian must obey as one still beholden to a broken covenant of works. He will ultimately stand or fall upon his own performance. The Christian has been delivered from this first covenant and its curse by the perfect obedience and satisfaction of Jesus Christ and has been redeemed from the tyranny of sin's power and now follows the only true King, his Lord and Savior, in faith and hope and love as one who has passed from death into light. There's a vast difference between one who obeys seeking to earn life and one who obeys who has been given life and who is beginning to see what true life really is. This is perhaps the best instruction that I can give you as a Christian who's going to get obedience wrong, undoubtedly. The reason you're going to get it wrong is because you're going to consider obedience in the arena of merit. And by virtue of placing it in that arena, you're going to need to downplay the standards because you can't earn anything. And by placing in that arena, you're going to start to judge others who you don't deem to be doing as well as you. And it's going to be a wrong-headed and disastrous endeavor. But once we take it outside of the realm of merit and realize Christ alone merits, obedience as children opens up. Obedience as beggars who have been given bread and find that bread sustaining a life unlike the life that you led apart from Christ. There's no room to look haughtily upon other beggars who are sustained by the same bread and perhaps forget to eat from time to time and need to be encouraged and reminded. There's a vast difference between those two considerations of obedience. Christian, you're not going to merit forgiveness. We know what you and I have merited. 
It's on display in the cross of Jesus Christ. Every consideration of our relationship with God that trades on our merit ends in curse. That's the glory of the gospel. That Christ gives us what he earns and freely takes to himself what we have earned. But then this opens up the obedience of children who are learning how to love true life instructed by the one who is life, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can close by asking, obedience to what? Question 39 answers, to his revealed will. All will be held accountable to what God has made known. And there is that which God has plainly revealed to all. That's what Micah says. He has told you. He has told you, O man. He has made it known. It is not hidden. It has been spoken plainly. And this to all people. Paul assumes the same thing when he declares, Therefore, O man, you are without excuse. Why? Because you know what he's called you to do. Because he's made it abundantly plain. Again, we see God's goodness on display in this observation. Paul says that there is more than enough revealed in creation to bring about true obedience and worship if man were in his right mind. But man is not in his right mind. Man is deranged. And thus all that is revealed so plainly benefits not the natural man. But I assure you that God's goodness in revealing plainly is not diminished thereby. If a blind man does not see at noonday, is the problem with the sun? If a deaf man does not hear in a concert hall, is the problem with the orchestra? If a dunce is left unmoved by Tolstoy, is the problem with Tolstoy? No. The problem is with the dunce, the deaf, the blind. He has told you, O man. You are without excuse, O man. But we can also feel in this as a church that there is an increased responsibility in what he has revealed to us. The more God has revealed, the greater the responsibility to respond rightly. So we can feel as God's people that we are in a position of greater responsibility in one respect, given that we possess greater revelation. If the pagan is immersed in light and sound and wisdom, how much more the Christian? How much more the church? This is not plainly in Scripture when Jesus speaks of the cities who saw his miracles and yet did not repent. It will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon. It's not plainly in Scripture when the author to the Hebrews speaks of the visible church as that arena of heavenly rain pouring down week in and week out. And yet still, some in her midst produce thorns. 
This is a difficult teaching, is it not? Let it humble us. Let it place us at the feet of Christ, pleading that as we drink of the rain, his life would be made manifest among us as we receive it by faith. Let us humble ourselves before the Lord. Undoubtedly, there is not one among us who has yielded the crop of righteousness, which is fitting to the rain that we have drunk. But we can also rejoice that there is a true vine, that there is one who only ever did what was just and righteous, walking with his God the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is based upon his intercession that we look unto the majesty on high with a confidence that is not fixed upon our performance, but fixed upon Christ's all-surpassing sufficiency. But don't stop there. Ask for a greater hunger and thirst for righteousness. Ask for a greater supply of the only bread that will satisfy and result in true life. The Lord Jesus Christ who came to give himself as heavenly food. Let's pray. Mm. Mm. Father, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. Humble us, Lord. Exalt your son. Posture us rightly before him. Help us to see him, his excellencies, with the eyes of faith, and that seeing him we might grow in our love for him and our eagerness to follow after him wherever he calls, forsaking the world and its riches, marking that indeed there is a cost, but compared to what is gained in Christ, it is no cost at all. Give us the eyes of faith to see this, the ears to to hear this, Lord, that you may be praised. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.